0: And I hope you have a copy of the Word today as we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about Jesus today as we've been, as we're prone to do on Sundays, but as we've especially been doing so uh, in our study through the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, we're in Luke 4. Uh, we'll be reading verses 16 through 22 to open up our time together, uh, and we'll uh, begin reading there in just a few minutes. We're just a few episodes in to our journey through Luke. Um, Luke has been telling us the story of Jesus as it was told by many eyewitnesses. And this particular uh, narrative, only found in Luke, um, is especially uh, kind of important because it comes from the eyewitnesses of Jesus' hometown. Um, It's his hometown synagogue, his home, his family, people that initially rejected him People that initially wrote him off as, as not of God at all um, would years later tell Luke about their first encounter with Jesus the Messiah, which uh, I think it's just it, it leaves such a mark on, on the story uh, of Luke and really de- de- determines uh, kind of where the story goes from here. So let's go ahead and read Luke 4, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. He gave it to the attendant and sat down. But the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Now Luke as we've learned, is touting his version of the gospel, his version of the story of Jesus, as an orderly account um, but it's also a narrative, and we can't run away from this uh, reality that Luke's gospel is kind of the picture it's painting for us. It's a narrative that perfectly captures exactly what happened before the eyes of those that, that lived and breathed and moved around Jesus in his earthly days. And, and we've learned that Luke's gospel is the most detailed, it's the most sourced, it's the most historical, and it's the most Orderly of all of the gospels, if you read Mark, Mark's all over the place. Um, Mark, is, and if, and really, he uses the words immediately. He uses the words now, so often so quickly as he's just moving from story to story. He's not necessarily worried about giving us kind of a point A to point B in order version of the gospel. He just wants us to know as much as he could fit on his few sheets of paper that he had. Um, John is writing a very kind of you know uh, kind of lofty, kind of high theological uh, essay about how. Jesus is God, and how He exhibits all these different angles of God, and He He orders His story in a way to kind of capture that. Uh, again, Matthew, you know, He tells His story uh, pretty much in order, but it's full of parables and full of sermons of Jesus, and it's not really a matter of where Jesus was when He preached them, but a matter of what Jesus preached. But Luke. However, Luke is telling us a historical account of Jesus' life from beginning, before he was born even, right? Luke sets the stage before Jesus was born, some a year and a half before, and he takes us all the way to the very end and after that even. So Luke's gospel, we can trust it as the most orderly, most detailed, most historical, most sourced of all four that we have. And and here's something that's important to remember when reading the story. And you might chuckle when I say this, but maybe we don't often think about this. Luke knew the outcome before he wrote the story. Luke knew the end before he ever began to research the beginning and the middle and everything else. Luke knew where this was going, right? Luke came into the story as a Christian, right? Having been impacted by the Holy Spirit, having been changed by Jesus through the ministry of Paul, Luke began to write this story, and he already believed in Jesus. He already had experienced Jesus. He just wanted to get all the details so that he could package this up and send it to whomever, wherever, whenever they might read. It to know the same Jesus that he knows. But Luke knew where it was going. So when he began to write this story, like any good writer, like any good storyteller, especially a nonfiction account. A good writer who knows where the story is going, as they start to uncover the backstory, they'll start drawing the line and they'll start leaving little crumbs early on in the story to foreshadow where it's going. And, and, and the good authors will, will use kind of that narrative liberty to say, hey, this is kind of a picture of where we're going. The, I'm going to include this story or I'm going to angle it this way so that we kind of see where this is going. So as as, as any good writer, a good reporter, when you find out what happened 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and you're writing about somebody that lives right now, and you're trying to tell their backstory, as you begin to write about what happened decades before, you'll start crafting that narrative, and it's not just an A to B to C story, but it's an A to Z story, a B to Z story, a C to Z story. As you tell each little episode, you're pointing toward the conclusion. You're telling each isolated story giving a foreshadow of where it's all going. I hope that makes sense. So as they're researching, and as Luke researched and discovered the details, I thought, I think more than once, he must have thought, oh my, I see how this is a picture of the resurrection. This is a picture of the saving power. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And Luke begins to drop some of those breadcrumbs along the way for us to pick up on. Now Luke is telling and framing this story with a clear agenda. He wants to draw out specific details to help punctuate what the resurrection and what the church is all about and what they mean to you 2,000 years later. So Luke, you know, he references the temple almost every other chapter, right? Chapter 1 opens up in the temple. Chapter 2, they go back to the temple. We see the temple brought up so many times because what were the Jews looking for? They were looking for the presence of God to come back to their temple. And Luke's message is, the presence of God is not coming back to your temple. He's not coming back to any building in any place, confined place. The presence of God has come back through Jesus and He has been unleashed on the world through through the Holy Spirit, He's not going to be in a building. So let's go ahead and make that clear. You say, well, you know, you can see that. In chapter 1, they're in the temple waiting. Chapter 2, they're in the temple waiting. And Jesus comes in as a baby, and Simeon and Anna start saying, hey, there is the presence of God. John the Baptist, down by the river, they go to Him and say, John, why are you here? Why aren't you in the temple? And John says, God's not coming back to the temple. He's coming back. Right here, as Jesus walks over the bank. If you read the story that we looked at last week, when Jesus is a little boy in the temple at Passover... Clearly, Luke includes that story because he wants to point to 20 years later when Jesus would be the Passover lamb, right? Where Jesus is greater than the temple. He's greater than the Passover lamb. He's the Savior of the whole world. So that's Luke's agenda. You know, why that, you know why that's Luke's agenda? You know why Luke is trying to let us in on that before we get to the end of the story? Because Luke already knew Jesus was the Savior. He was just getting the backstory about it. So you can have confidence that Jesus is the Savior based on the story of the resurrection alone, but the backstory helps fill in some of those gaps that you might have questions about and that you might have Concerns about, hey, how does that line up and how does that make sense? We can turn open the pages of Scripture and we can get the whole story. Jesus, not the temple, is the entryway to the kingdom of God. Jesus, not a lamb, is the solution for our sins. Luke tells us about John the Baptist. He's preparing a way for Jesus to step on the stage and draw all the eyes away from the temple, away from the the Jewish traditions. John preaches that a Messiah is coming and he's already in the midst of the people and anticipation is buzzing on the banks of the Jordan. And the religious leaders wrote him off as a troublemaker and believed his movement would fizzle out when no legitimate Messiah showed up. And here's something I want to talk about to kind of set us up for this sermon that Jesus preached. I want to talk about this because it's so relevant for us today. Messiah fever was all but over in the days of Jesus. The Jews had quit looking for a Savior from God. And, and you might think, well, what happened? I mean, in the Old Testament, they're waiting for a Messiah. They're waiting and praying and waiting and praying. But during the days of Jesus, they had pretty much given up on the idea that a Messiah was actually coming. And in that span of 400 or so years... The Jewish religion meant merely to point to and exercise faith in a coming Messiah had replaced the need for a Savior. That they leaned so hard into their traditions. They created a system that walled off some, that knocked down others, and exalted them. They didn't need a Savior. They had themselves. And this is so relevant for church people today, I think. For me as a religious person. They didn't need a Savior. They had Themselves. They didn't need big faith in a God who could do the impossible because they had watered God down to being an item on a shelf that they dusted off once a week. The only insiders were convinced that they were all right, but while those on the periphery, the masses, they were controlled by fear that if we don't comply with the religious rules that God won't be good to us. The religious leaders were spellbound them into this and that, but the people weren't getting any help at all. They remained captive and blind and numb and disabled. They were frozen and stuck in their sins, their struggles, their shortcomings. Religion didn't offer any sort of solution, but nobody dared to speak up. You see, religion appeared to have absolute authority. It appeared to control the temperature in the room, so everybody stayed in line. But truth be told... Religion has very little authority at all. And religious leaders would would hate for you to find that out. Religion has no authority at all. It just pretends to. Religious leaders knew and know they're getting nowhere. They know they are only fooling people into keeping the system going. Religion knows its place as a tool of the broken and fallen world. It contains the panic. It, it, it filters the noise until people just accept brokenness and fallenness as a way of life. Until some even are so deceived into believing things aren't that bad. They might even be improving. With every altar visit, every drink from religion's cup is another drip of toxic... Maybe this is where you're at today. Maybe you are wrapped around religion's finger. Maybe you've lost all faith in faith. Let me say this. Religion is not synonymous with any certain tradition. Religion comes in all shapes, sizes, styles, and tones. Religion can be loud and bright. It can be monotone and dull. It can be stained glass and robes and hymnals. It can be atmospheric and charismatic and energetic. Religion will put any skin on it needs to deceive you. To distract you from Jesus. To supplement Jesus just enough to make you think, ah, I've got my fix. Now I know I seem to paint any and all religious systems as just pure evil, but that's not the case. Religion in all of its facets thinks it's doing the right thing because religion is controlled by fear. Religion has accepted The broken and fallen world, it's simply a pawn of it. Truth be told, religion bows at the feet of death and hell and it cowers at their orders to not give people any real hope or help. Religion pretends to be a cure-all when in reality it cures no one and nothing at all. So the Jewish leaders they convinced themselves that they didn't need a messiah that their religion would take care of them most of their adherents felt trapped rather they been freed they felt blindfolded not enlightened they felt they had no voice many of them were poor undignified by their circumstances And I think many churches suffer from this deception. Many Christians suffer from this deception. We've accepted defeat. We've accepted the idea of pretending that things are okay. And no wonder our churches are full of believers who've never really experienced the help of God. Who enter week after week and don't expect anything great to be said uh, or anything spoken from God. We don't expect that God's gonna do anything mighty in our lives anymore. We don't anticipate or we have no sort of, uh, of hope or excitement that God might actually intervene or work in our lives. We assemble for worship with bad attitudes as we do for work. We make excuses, we come with different motives. And maybe it's because we have accepted and we've just settled on pretending. In the small town of Nazareth, that was the case. It was business as usual. Even Jesus played alone for many, many years. Rumors swirled that Jesus had joined John's cult. Some even claimed he was a wonder worker, a healer. But for all those rumors, they died down when he came back to town and continued his life as a carpenter and remained faithful to his local synagogue. Until it was his turn to do a reading one Saturday, he stood up at the front of the service and announced himself as the long awaited Messiah. There were no shouts or applauses. There was nobody in the crowd that expected that to happen. Everyone was shocked, so shocked that they attempted to kill him when they realized he wasn't joking. Jesus reads from a text from Isaiah that would normally have been taken as a promise of a Messiah coming one day, but Jesus does them one better and says, no, this isn't one day. This is today. I am the Messiah. I am God's anointed Savior. But the crowd is non-pulsed and unmoved by His claim. Many begin to think, is this not Joseph's son? And deep down, they doubted, wondering what the purpose of a Messiah would even be. Religion... Had beaten them down and intimidated them from being honest about themselves, about their needs, about their struggles, about their weaknesses. They no longer went to God expecting help. They just went to keep Him happy and to keep people from judging them. Religion, and this is so subtle. And if this if this is where religion has brought you today, I hope this can speak to your heart. Religion taught people to suppress their needs and brokenness rather than confess them. Religion teaches people, don't talk about your needs. Don't talk about your brokenness. Just suppress those things. Don't talk about those things. Pretend they aren't really there. Instead of confessing that you've got a problem and that you're looking for a Savior. So when Jesus introduces Himself as the Messiah to this religious audience, they were offended, not overjoyed. They didn't need saving. They thought, Physician, heal yourself. We don't need anything from you. And they thought, If you really are God's Messiah, let's see what you can do. And Jesus, of course, didn't offer to do any sort of wonder or miracle in front of them. He wanted to do a work on their hearts. I think sometimes we uh, become so used to spectating in our faith. Isn't it true? That we often, maybe you've grown up and you've, your, your faith has been confined to sitting on a pew and being a passive bystander and you observe what God is doing. You hear what God is doing. You read about what God is doing. Meanwhile, your heart is dead and cold. And you've told yourself, it's never going to happen for me. I've heard about it, I've read about it, I've even watched it happen, but there's never going to be that kind of change in me. I never will be what they are or what the Bible says I might can be. That's just not going to happen for me. Maybe you're familiar with the word or the idea of vicarious. Vicarious means to experience something indirectly. To experience something by proxy. To experience something through proximity to somebody else experiencing it. And here's the biggest lie religion wants you to accept. Religion wants you to think that God is someone that can only be experienced vicariously and indirectly. He wants to deceive you into thinking that your status, your conditions, your place in life doesn't allow for you to experience for yourself what so many others throughout history and what so many others might be experiencing. You're too small. You're too busy. You're too weak. Maybe it'll have you thinking, it's just not for me. I mean, I, you know, there's preachers and spiritual people, but that's not for me. Jesus speaks to you in verse 18 when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel. And what's the first audience he addresses? The poor. Those that are at the bottom of society. Those that have been told they aren't valuable, they aren't important, they don't matter. He says to the brokenhearted, to the captive, to those that are tied up by their circumstances, hey, you matter to me, you matter to God. I know religion has told you, you don't have a place at the table, but I'm here to show you that you do. He says to the blind, you can see again. You can see for yourself. And really Luke's gospel is the opposite of a vicarious gospel. Luke wants you to see for yourself like so many else did. Luke's friend John would write years later, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know for yourself, that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, the Scripture tells us here the acceptable year or the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus brings us favor from God. He brings us into favor with God. And there's three very important realities I want to draw out from this sermon of Jesus. Jesus tells us three very important things, powerful things about favor from God. That our value is not tied to our success. Our potential is not measured by our past. Our future is not limited by our sight. That you have value? You have potential and you have a future that is not determined and is not defined and is not limited to what you may have experienced in your life. So many of us live as if this isn't true for us. We are distracted by lesser things. We are held back by smaller things. We are limited by weaker things. We don't live as if we've been given favor from God. We don't believe as if we've been brought into favor with God. Why is that? Why do we go about our days determining our value by what the world says about us? Why, why do we still look in the mirror and determine our value by how, much, by how we look and by what we weigh and by what we wear and by what we own? Why do we still think that we're only as valuable as our success, as our stuff? Why is that? When Jesus spoke these words of freedom over us, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, not about your body, what you will put on. For life is more. Say that with me. Life is more. Life is more. That's the best news for somebody today. Life is more than food, and life is more than clothing. And that was what mattered to them, right? We might take for granted that we've got food and clothing. Maybe it's something bigger for you. Maybe it's a, you know, your your savings account, maybe it's the way you look, maybe it's the what you weigh, maybe it's your, your success in your job, your success in your community, or how you measure up to your family, or what people expect from you. Life is more than that. You know why I know that? Jesus said so. Life is more than those things. Consider the birds, the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They neither have storehouses. Yet God feeds them. Of how much more value? More value. More value. Somebody needs to grab a hold of that today. Write that on a card and look at that every morning and realize life is more. I have more value. Why do we determine God's presence by our success? Why do we determine God's presence by our country's success? Why do we worship and give so much power to money? Hello? I know that so many of us do this because when Jesus tries to tell us what to do with his money, we hold on to it like we're tied to it. Remember what Jesus told that rich fool? God said to him, fool, this is not your soul is required of you. in the things you've prepared. whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. When Jesus is trying to get us to let go of something, it's to see that our worth is not tied to that something. And even greater, there's something better to invest in. Why do we allow our scars in our past to define us rather than our potential? Why do you let your past define you when God says you have potential beyond that? You know where this shows up more than ever? How you treat people. How many of you have been hurt by somebody before? Don't raise your hands because the Lord will offend somebody because it might have been the person next to it. How many of you have been hurt by somebody before? How many of you allow that one experience to color your potential experience with somebody else? You know how I know we measure our potential by our past more than anything? How we react to things like this. Jesus says, love your enemies. Whoa, can't do that. Why not? Because I did it one time. Actually, I did it to somebody who wasn't my enemy, and then they became my enemy. (laughs) So I can't love anybody. Love my enemies, do good to those that hate me. I mean, come on, Jesus, do you ever play this back to yourself at night? I mean, I think Jesus laying in bed one night, man, that was a little bit rough. Do good to those that hate you. I mean, maybe I should have toned that down a little bit. Do good to those that are, give you a bad look. That's hard enough. Love your enemies. We react so strongly to that, don't we? I can't do it, we say. Why can't you? Because it doesn't work that way, we say. How do you know it doesn't work that way? Because of this one time. You're going to let that one time define your potential to be used by God? Really? Jesus says you have tremendous potential to be the light of the world. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. Great. And you will be son to the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as, even as your Heavenly Father has been to you. If we measure our potential by our scars and our past, we will never measure up to who God has called us to be. Jesus said, give and it shall be given. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So don't limit your potential. Because that will be the result that you get. We'll never know, we will never know until we listen to Jesus more than we listen to our past. Jesus is our potential. He's not our past. i got to ask you one more question. Why do we trust our ability to see the future? How good are you at predicting the future? Come on, we would all invested in Google 20 years ago if we hadn't, could see the future that well, right? If things were always the way you saw them, most of us would have never made it past yesterday. How many of you have ever said I'll never make it? Woohoo, you made it. You probably weren't expecting to see me on the other side, but right? We're here. I don't know how positive or negative your future you are about your future. I don't know where you see yourself going or what you see yourself doing. Maybe you don't ever think about the future. Don't believe the lie that says you can't see, the, the lie that you might think about your future just because you can't see beyond today. You can trust somebody that can see and has seen. Don't we hear so often we walk by faith, not by sight? What does faith mean? My faith. Our faith. Is future available in and through Him? That faith means God has a future for me. It's available in and through Jesus. So I'm going to cling to Jesus. I don't know what's next. I don't know where He's going with me. I don't know what's going to happen. But He promises me He's going to give me sight. And when I can not see, He can see. So I'm holding on to Him. I have a future available in and through Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you struggle seeing your future, your potential, your value. Because let's be honest, you're just struggling keeping your head above the water right now, maybe. Maybe this world's fallenness and brokenness have you all but defeated and maybe the band-aids you or others have attempted to apply have just left a bad taste in your mouth. But here's what I know. Jesus as our Messiah means. Jesus has authority over what is fallen and what is broken. Look down at verse number 31 in closing. Then he went to the town of Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, as if there are clean demons, right? Luke is very specific unclean demons and he cried out with a loud voice let us alone what have we to do with you jesus of nazareth did you come to destroy us i know who you are the holy one of god at least somebody in the house knew who jesus was but jesus rebuked him be quiet come out of him and when the demon had thrown him in the midst that it came out of him and did not hurt him And they were all amazed and spoke among themselves what a word this is, for with authority and power He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about Him went to every place in the surrounding regions. If Jesus has authority and power over the enemy, I think He has power over your enemies. Because your enemies are minions and messengers from the enemy. And the enemy knows who Jesus is and he's scared beyond compare of Him. If you go back and read the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus is coming off of His baptism and the Father spoke over Him. The Spirit is moving through Him and from Him. There's this unity and this union with God that Jesus has that nobody could understand, right? We know that's the Trinity, but they were just so babies in their faith they couldn't understand it. And Jesus is about to tell the whole world about how we can be one with God. We can have this union with Father, Son, and Spirit fulfilling what David mused about when he said, you prepare a table before me, God. That David longed for this day where he could sit down at a table with God and just him and the Lord have this communion that was unrivaled by anything else. And that's, what, that's the story that Luke is telling. God wants you to come to His table and have a seat. That's a picture we see through all, all throughout Luke, how God wants to establish this personal and present relationship with you, with all of us. He wants to sit you down every morning and talk about your value to you. To build you up, to strengthen you, to purpose you for His use. He wants you to to welcome you in after a rough day and remind you that your scars and your past don't measure your potential. And I know today went bad, but tomorrow we'll get them again. He offers you forgiveness and healing with every conversation. He wants to look at you in the eyes after a season of life that's just been up and down and maybe more down. And maybe you're doubting what's next. He wants... To reach out to you and say, you know what's next? I am next. So trust me, have faith, I've got this. You can walk in my power, in my spirit, in my glory, no matter what. If you don't realize, believe this is the center of the invitation to know Jesus, then really read Luke. Read the whole Bible. Jesus tells that there's a great banquet that we're all invited to. At the time of the banquet, the servant says to those who have been invited, come, everything is ready. Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus modeled what it meant to be in fellowship with God. Even against temptation. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is tempted by the devil himself. He's tempted to turn rocks into bread. But he doesn't give in to the counterfeit. He's tempted to take a shortcut to get to his destiny. He's tempted to back God into a corner to get his way. But he knew that God valued him. He knew that he didn't have to take stones and pass them off as bread to survive. How many of us have done that? How many of us do that? We live off cheap substances, temporary thrills. Jesus knew that God had a destiny for him. He wasn't about to take a shortcut. He knew his potential would be realized through God's plan. How many of us take shortcuts to get where we want to be, but end up so far away? He knew he could trust God. He didn't have to test him or have proof. The enemy knew the cross was foggy, and maybe you're holding on trusting God because you don't think God has proven himself worthy to you in the smaller ways. But we don't need proof. We have Jesus. The scripture says the enemy never again tempted to try to, tried to tempt Jesus directly. He knew he was no match for Jesus. But Luke chronicles something very strange that had never been seen before. All throughout Judea, people were suddenly experiencing great temptations, and as people were given into sin, they were pulled down into darkness into scary, intense, debilitating demon possessions. Nowhere in the Old Testament or farther into the New Testament have we see anything like this. As heaven invaded earth, hell unleashed its forces to fight back. Hell had dominion over the earth and Jesus stepped in declaring His authority and hell tried to stop it. The Holy Spirit has continued to move ever since and maybe not in the same intense otherworldly ways as the days of Jesus, but hell is still fighting to keep you, to destroy you, before Jesus can get you or distract you from what Jesus wants to do with you. Psalm 23, 5 had more to it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So God has set this table But the enemies are around us. There are enemies everywhere. David saw his seat as a power of security. But it's also a seat of temptation. The enemy has the power and the ability to rip us into pieces if we let our guard down, if we listen to his lies, his alternatives, if we give him a seat at the table, he talks so much that eventually we'll forget that God's even there. I've got to share this with y'all, because I think it speaks to something that I've struggled with for a long time. You know, being a preacher, I try to always be nice and friendly when I'm out in the public, and one of the biggest challenges I've faced in recent years, though, has been in restaurants. Really, you see, I have a wife. She's really pretty. She plays piano really good, too. Um, y'all might not believe I have a wife, right? Have have a wife. Wow. <laughs> My time is pretty limited, though. More limited than you might think. I'm always preoccupied. Ask her phones ringing, texts, and recently I made a decision. I haven't always kept this. Sometimes we go into restaurants and we see people and people see us. And sometimes the temptation is to just push all the tables together and out of obligation, kind of just have a big meal. And you know what's more important though? That her and I have that time together. And I have to remember that. You've been there before, haven't you? Suddenly, somebody else is at the table. Before you know it, you're not even focused on who you sat down to dine with. Look up here. Louis Giglio preached a sermon I've listened to so many times. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. Rebuke Him. Silence Him. Focus on Jesus. Because even though Jesus is immune to Him, we are not, you are not, many of us have let Him in. If the enemy is tearing you apart, if he's tearing your marriage apart, if he's already torn a marriage apart, if he's laden you with debt and addiction, and there's more on your back, and it's crippling you beneath its weight, just know that Jesus is greater. He has authority over those demons. If you battle temptation day after day, there is no place for shame. There is a place for healing. If you fall short, if you stumble, if your life is crumbling right now, cry out to Jesus. Don't pretend. Don't hold on. Don't hide it anymore. Don't let sin tell you that your value has been diminished. Don't let sin convince you that your worth is tied to something that is killing you. Don't listen to sin try to convince you that if you don't keep drinking that and taking that and going there and doing that and talking to them, that suddenly you'll lose something. Sin is afraid of losing you. The enemy trembles at the thought of Jesus becoming your full and final authority. Maybe you tremble at the thought of rising up from the shame, but I'm here to tell you Jesus is here to tell you you can trust Him. This world's brokenness and fallenness would love for you to believe that there is no hope, but there absolutely is. You know, Luke was a doctor. I'm sure he encountered cases that he couldn't help. There are many scenarios where the experts say there's nothing we can do. And many things we face may indeed end in loss. We will all face death one day. But that doesn't mean that we can't bow at His feet in the meanwhile and find strength in it to endure and overcome even the most impossible of odds. I bet of all the interviews that Luke got to do with, Jesus, with, with people in his time in Jerusalem, there was one that he would never forget. Luke's reporting tells us of a great in great detail of a famous woman. Jesus was pressing, went, went and the people pressed around Him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she would spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Him and touched the fringe of His garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you who hasn't touched you. But Jesus said, No, somebody touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before Him in the presence of all the people that hated her. She was only focused on one man. Why she had touched Him and how she had been healed, immediately healed. And He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. All that we would have that kind of faith. The faith that reaches out to, for Jesus and believes that His power is going to reach out to us. Oh, that we could experience for ourselves the salvation that this text is pouring out for us today. If you're fighting the enemy, if you're fighting every force of hell to save your marriage, your career, your health, there is power that can help you today. I'm not promising that everything will be instantly better. I'm promising that Jesus Christ won't make things worse. And I'm promising you that He will make you free and give you sight and give you clarity and give you the strength to take another step He will show you your value and your potential. And more than that, He'll show you you have a future. Beyond your failures. Beyond your fears. Beyond your frustrations. Maybe you've had enough dealing with the power of hell and sin. Luke writes with authority and confidence. That We'll go to this last verse from Luke. That you... Next one, that you can be clothed with power from on high. If you need that today, I want you to come. I don't care what you're fighting and what you're facing. I don't care what you're going through. The invitation for you to come and ask God for that power. Lindsay's going to come play on the piano while we have a word of prayer. The altar will be open And if you need to talk to Jesus today, the altar is open for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for this service today. Thank you for the freedom that you've spoken into our lives. God, if there's anybody in this house today that they are bound, they are captive, they feel like they'll never get free. Anybody in the house that needs a miracle, they need you for you to move in their life. I pray that you would bring them to a place of humility, a place of honesty. Lord, you promise there is power that can come upon us today power that can conquer our fears, power that can conquer our failures, power that can forgive our past, power that brings value and brings potential and promises a future. God, I don't know what anybody is dealing with today, but somebody needs to know that that power is available, that that power is free, that power is from heaven, that power is from Jesus, and it can come to them today if they ask you to forgive them, to free them, and give them power like never before.